0: Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, editor in chief of Furniture Today. If your social media is not up to snuff, if your digital marketing needs improvement, please join us at Furniture Today's next conference, September 25th through 27th, at Live by Lowe's in Arlington, Texas. So my guest this week is Jack Egger, Senior Vice President of Krypton Home Fabrics. Jack, welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. So um, for folks, we have a very diverse audience. So just quickly, for folks who, who may not know exactly who Krypton is, or what Krypton is, other than a misspelling of Superman's home planet, <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about Krypton.
1: Uh, Krypton was was created by uh, Craig and Randy Rubin about 25 years ago, and they had the most innovative product in healthcare and hospitality in the upholstery side. We developed it about seven eight years ago. They decided to expand the business into the performance aspect of residential furniture. So they looked at the landscape there and realized that the time was right for for performance to enter into the residential market. And there was really no one at that time who was doing performance in really dedicated to the indoor space. Okay, Um, so
0: your your background actually goes back quite a bit farther than Krypton. Um, A little birdie told me that you actually started in the textiles business at as, as early as 14 and kind of grew up in a mill town. Tell me about
1: that. No, that's true. I, I grew up in Philadelphia, um, not far from where the Rocky Movie was filmed. So a lower middle class area that was dominated by textile mills. So in a five mile radius, there was probably there were a little over 100 mills, um, carpets and fabric and and uh, yarn and all types of textile related products. So when I was a kid, looking for a summer job, I started banging on doors, and one of them was a was a fabric mill. One of the first mistakes I made is we started we were traveling packs when you were kids, as you, I'm sure you did too. Uh-huh. So we're looking looking for a first job and bringing four guys in and saying, "Hey, we're looking for work." And That was not the greatest idea because <laughs> you're looking to <laughs> say they're not trying to hire a boy band here; they're looking for somebody to work in their mill. So that, but despite that, we got hired. And the first jobs I had were basically breaking down old looms, so with sl- with a sledgehammer and a set of tools. And so it was an in really kind of inverted way of learning the weaving business. And I thought it was you know a job that was going to be a summer, and then it was going to be goodbye and then on to my real life. So, what happened was it just kept going on and it worked for me. It worked for them. So the jobs I had when I was a kid range from weaving to working on the looms to being literally being the watchman on the weekend, I would come, I would come in during, you know, on Saturday and Sunday, I would really do, do be a watchman, I would have a clock around my neck like the slave of slave clock a oh, giant yeah. thing looked like a cartoon and it had a little tape on it and what you would have to do is walk around the mill and and really turn keys so that the insurance company would know that after a few hours you were you had been to 35 places in your mill and that in case something went wrong there was a fire they knew that you were taking a look at it i know exactly
0: awesome. the clock that you're talking about i actually had a similar job I mean, it's one of those big skeleton keys, you push it in, you turn it, and it physically puts a punch on the tape that you were in that
1: location at that time. At that time. And you're thinking, at, at age 16, you're thinking, this is what my life is going to be? This, I got to get the hell out of here. right? So it just kept going. I went to college in Philadelphia and had the intention of I had a degree in education and never never thought in my life that i would stay in the textile business but what uh, so there was so much learning there um for example we would do inventory um and we would so you would have to take take uh, measurements of the boxes of yarn that the mill had and so we, what we did is we learned the yarn sizes by betting on them so you would take the ticket off of the yarn Throw it across the room to somebody, and they'd have to guess the yarn, and and so you learned the difference between a fifties two denier yarn and a thirties two denier yarn, which is you know mundane stuff. But it was you were betting a quarter a quarter a cone, you were making two dollars and forty one cents an hour. It was a pretty big gamble, so you had to learn really quick, or you went home at the end of the week with no money. (laughs) So, so then it kept evolving where i was meeting interesting people because the mill was the mill that i worked at which was called craftex mills was a cast of characters that was out of a movie um the owner that there were a couple of owners the first one who had a tremendous impact on my life was named cy cedar and he was a harvard law guy and he wound up he was actually was a was a uh, clerk for Justice Frankfurt who wound up on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So he's a Harvard guy from Massachusetts, marries a lady from Philadelphia, her family business gets in trouble, and here he comes down to save the day. So he's a frustrated guy sitting in there running this damn textile place that he has no intention of wanting to stay. But he realized at that point he did. So I I became friends with him, and he took me under his wing. And he taught me things that stick to my head today. I mean, he was he was just a brilliant, phenomenal mentor for me. Can you give me an example?
0: What, sure. what was something
1: yeah. that you that you remember from back then? So, when he talked me into staying after I got out of college, because I thought I was either going to be a teacher or go to law school, he calls me into his office and says, um, "Why don't you stay here?" And I said, "There's no job here for me. I need to, you know, go out in the real world." he said to me, you know, you're right. The the only job worth having here is mine and I'm not ready to give it to you yet. But why don't you give it a year and let's see what happens. So I said, okay. And I said, well, let's talk about money. He said, okay, I'm giving you $9,000 a year. And I said, I can't do that. I just got married. I'm 21 years old. I can't live on $9,000 a year. So he said, that's it. That's all I can afford to pay you. So at that point, I had no other options. I figured, okay, I'm here. Six months later, I'm working like crazy, doing everything I can do, and thinking I'm probably the smartest guy that's ever entered the textile business. So I walked into his office one day, and I said, I need to get a raise. And he said, I'm sorry, we don't give raises until a year. I said, and you've only been here six months. I said, I've been here six years, not six months. Oh. And he... And, he's, and, and he said to me, I'm sorry, we don't review until a year. I said, look, I've de- learned more in six months that anybody else you could have hired would have learned in a year. And the argument went on for three hours and he gave me a thousand bucks. Next day I came in, he had a squawk box, which I'll never forget. It was like a beige, an ugly beige color. And he's on a conference call and he says, he says, calls me. And he says to the two people who are on the phone who owned a jobbing business in Cleveland. we're one of our best customers he said to him your problems are over i've got a guy here who's learned more in six months than anybody else could have in a year he'll take care of you and he walked out of the office (laughs) i was in so far over my head i had no idea what the hell to do so so he did this to me three more times and uh, i walked into his office and i said please if i give you the thousand dollars back can we please stop He said keep your money and never never think you know more than you really do
0: wow that's a real that's that's a tough love kind of lesson
1: (laughs) yeah and that's what he did and he did that for a long time for me but it it sounds
0: like even though he did something that i mean there's two ways I, i would think a young person can handle that you can get angry and say, I'm, I'm out of here. Or it sounds like you recognized fairly early on, even for a young guy, that there was an intentional lesson there, that there was a value in, in learning that.
1: It's true. And, and, and here's a guy who was educated beyond belief and, and was in a job that he obviously, even though he said he didn't like it, he had learned to love it. And it had become his life. And you start to realize, as you see people around you there, that it might not be so bad. <laughs> that was the first step, that it might not be so bad, which is not a lofty goal, but it, it's a goal. And it, I was stayed there another couple of years, did work again with everyone, product development, who uh, the sales, head of sales, who was the other partner, who was like a, a, d- a dynamic man, who would walk down to the high point market, and everybody bill everybody would recognize this guy oh there's the craft x guy he's there's bob blum that's the craft x guy and it was like you were traveling in in an entourage it was unbelievable so i started to think maybe this might not be so bad and so i I stayed at the mill a couple more years and then went to new york to sell for them um i stayed there 11 years and, and again beyond luck i was there with a guy who helped me probably more than anyone else in my career. I was in New York for 11 or 12 years. And the guy who was there was a senior sales person. His name was Jerry Newman. And he had had the same background as me, grew up in the neighborhood, worked his way up through, and they had sent him to New York probably 15 years before that. In the next 15 years, no one else made it other than me. And so that's the footsteps I wanted to follow in. He treated, he treated me like a surrogate father, taught me everything that there was to learn about selling, selling and life, which is kind of the same thing when you think about it. So when you started in the
0: business, there were hundreds of mills. You actually stayed at Kraftex right till the very end when it ended up being acquired. Um, you got to watch the textile industry really fundamentally shift. What was that like? Did you recognize what was happening at the time as the industry was moving overseas and, the, and it was consolidating? Um, did you know what was going on
1: or was it? I, I, yeah, I started. I think I started to, and probably not as quickly as I should. I, I saw so many changes. I mean, I, I was lucky in terms of the timing i mean i you had mentioned in one of your previous uh podcasts about the the, uh furniture wars book which i reread again a couple of months ago and i was at at that stage i the guys that you that mike dugan mentioned in the book the presidents of henron and drexel jack smith and daryl ferguson and guys like that i got to meet them and you know work with them as really not as as a and equal to them as as a kid in the background, just watching them do their job, Alex Schuford's father, and 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 people of that nature, and, and I saw what I thought would would be a, a never ending evolution of the of the furniture business and the fabric business in, in the United States, and then it did start to change. And part of the change impacted us at Kraftex dramatically. Uh, As much as anyone else in the country, I think, we had built a great business, a tremendously successful business. But what we did is we really concentrated on a couple of single products, right? And it was wash rayon chenille, which was the hottest thing in the market at that time. And we were selling everybody, jobbers, manufacturers, everybody with a pulse. And then all of a sudden, China happened. And it was at that point. It was more of a, not just a price thing. It was an intellectual property thing. Products were getting stolen. Um, designs were getting stolen. Yarns were getting stolen and recreated and brought over. And so what it did is it took a product that we were selling at sixteen dollars a yard, and they were being and it was being offered at seven ninety five. And and so over a two or three year period, um. It, it started to devastate your business. And the mistake that we made was that it was such a concentration in our business, we were not ready for that attack. And we did not have other products in line that could replace it. So our volume started to bleed. And so I saw up, up close and personal what can happen to a business when it becomes too dependent upon one product and when it also becomes susceptible to... To competition that you didn't really see coming. So, one of
0: the, the, I mean, they they say life, you know, difficult situations in life teach great lessons. Are there some lessons that you drew from that 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 you apply now, or do, that you think others might learn from? Because we, you know, you low cost labor continues to be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, price competition continues to be an issue. What were the lessons that you learned from that experience?
1: Yeah. Uh, So I've learned lessons from that, both personally and business-wise. And the personal lessons were that when you had success, the kind of success that a lot of the companies had at that point, it wasn't just us. It was a lot of the mills who were on top of the world. And the people who were running them were on top of the world. And some of them, like me, started to think that they were pretty damn good and pretty smart. And you would go into meetings, board meetings, and, and bank meetings, and and I remember one specifically where our bank said to uh, said to me, "What happens if a downturn happens, and you know your business drops 20 percent, and what is it? What is the plan for that?" And I said, "Well, you know, the plan is this. I'm here, and I'll I can figure this out, and." I had no worries, Bill. That there was not nothing that I couldn't think my way out of, and that I thought, okay, this will work and we'll be okay, and we'll just change and we'll do this. And then it hit, and now all of a sudden, we had no plan, and it it just it buried us. And so one, so a lot of the lessons I learned personally were, don't be so damn arrogant, you know, because you start to almost believe that you're that you're invincible. And, and that you're, that you, that you can handle anything. And the answer is you can't. You've got to realize you got to depend on planning and other people. And, and sometimes that just, that, and when I look back, that's kind of helped me because it made me a more balanced person who realized that they needed help and other people and different skill sets and a better business plan. and, so i think that from that from the personal standpoint it helped although it was devastating and it was it was you know hurtful to me at that point but came out of the back end i think better
0: now at the time that that happened you were at a much more senior level you were in management you were a leader within the company yeah um are there some lessons that you drew from that in terms of how you manage people through crisis how you manage people through difficult times Uh, because i think that's something that all leaders all managers struggle with it's it's easy when everything is going along smoothly and everything's going in a good direction um, but maintaining motivation maintaining morale um, getting people to function effectively in an environment where things are challenging and nobody knows for certain that you know you're heading in a downward trajectory but there are times where we all go through those ebbs and flows so were there some things that you think you learned about managing people in that time?
1: Yeah, I, I do. Uh, number one is, is honesty. You have to let people know what's going on. You can't blindside people because it's their lives. So so you owe it to them as a leader to really have them believe in you and, and understand what's going on and know that you're doing your best to keep things going. Um, and i don't think any of us did a great job at that at that time that's one of those lessons i think you learn after the fact and the key then becomes what happens in your career in in your life that you do the second time you know it, because the first time is now behind you and it's about learning and 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 being better and, and honing your not only your management philosophy but your but your life philosophy
0: mm-hmm
1: so in terms of managing people, I, I always thought it's, it's almost like it's almost like a football team. You know, you if you're a coach of a football team, you got to look around and see the talent that you have. And you may have a, you may have a, a philosophy of how you want to play the game. But the reality is, if you don't have the correct players to play it the way you want, you need to adapt your system around their strengths. And I think that's what good managers do is is they is they get. The, they, they look at the people that they have they hone their skills they treat them differently you can't treat every person the same way some people can take criticism some can't and you can you can kill the motivation of someone if you, if you misread their personality and you don't treat them the way that they feel that they should be so I think it's, it's really a juggling act of you become a bit of a therapist and, um, and I think that's part of the business is is understanding how to treat your people and and understanding the difference in your people and and you so you really need to get closer to them to understand what they need what they like and what they expect out of their job
0: would you like to step up your digital game seo and sem need improvement is your instagram all it can be if you want to improve these things, then please join us at Furniture Today's next conference, September 25th through 27th at Live by Lowe's in Arlington, Texas. Oh, and by the way, get an inside look at Nebraska Furniture Mart's largest store with a guided tour only at Next. So part of your initial degree was education and you had the thought process of being a teacher. Have you found that your career has actually in some ways paralleled that and you've ended up being a teacher only in different ways for for people
1: i feel that way and i feel like honestly that's one of the most important things to me right now and and you find out that you do if that's that was the original plan you realize there was something there which you had a skill set and a desire to do and so when you look at it and say okay i didn't take that path but i really want to accomplish those original goals and how do I do that? And so I, I've spent a lot of time trying to do that and trying to create a teaching situation. So a couple ways that that's happened for us is that uh, I've, been, I've ha- been given the opportunity to do some things at some schools, textile schools around the country that have really helped. Um, through Krypton, we sponsored a hand weaving competition at FIT uh, in New York. And so I started to work with those kids and we would bring yarns down and help them with the projects. And it was we wound up it would it was a judge uh, contest. So what I would do is get alumni from FIT who had been really made it in the textile business. And so part of and part of their goal would then be through me would be to come down and look at the portfolios and study that study what they had done and, and make awards. So they were picking winners out of this contest but the reality is what I was trying to do and what they were trying to do is show the kids that there was a career path for them from that school into our business and I think especially now when textiles has not been the sexiest way to make a living right now for a lot of kids I think we've missed a generation where you look at you know where you look and say where are the where are the 35 to 45 year old guys you know there's there's some of them but there's not enough and i think we missed that generation i think we owe it to them to get it get it back so i've done things with schools i've done some stuff with the itma in a couple of different uh timeframes about 15 years ago we started the education committee and we were doing things where we were taking students from the northeast and moving them up to new england to a mill up there and taking the new england kid and moving them down south and it really worked. And it and it not worked not worked just from a a work standpoint. It worked from a cultural standpoint. It was starting to make difference in people's lives and showing them different parts of the country and different ways of 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 interacting with people. So I, I enjoyed that a lot. And so I'm now back on that committee with ITMA. And and my goal is is to really spend a lot more of my time trying to do educational functions like that. Mm-hmm.
0: So after Craftex was acquired by Victor Group, um, you then helped integrate that. And then you actually kind of got involved with Krypton in what is effectively a startup role, right? I mean, Krypton was in the commercial side um, and then they were starting up a residential business and that's what you were brought there to help with. Did, did, was that very much like a startup, like starting from something from scratch? Tell me a little bit about how you get something like that off the
1: ground. Yeah, great. And it, it was, it was, it was exactly that. But it was a little, it was a little more complicated in the beginning. And it was another life lesson. Uh, when, when we got bought by Victor, <coughs> excuse me, I went up there for 18 months, uh, back and forth to Canada. And we had a plan in Fall River. And I spent a lot of time up there. And so v- Victor insisted that I be part of the deal when when they bought the company and i was reluctant to go because i had some other opportunities so um but i went and after about 18 months they decided that they don't want to be in a residential business anymore so i got i was up there for four days doing management meetings and on a friday night the the plant manager calls me in and asked me what time my flight was i told him and he called me he said, give me 10 minutes before you go and he walks in and he and he's got the HR lady there, and she's crying. And he says, "I'm sorry, this is a hard thing for me." And he fires me on a Friday night before Christmas. Oh. <laughs> it's like a it's like a bad movie. So I I go home. Um, my cell phone is de- is dead. I'm trying to call my wife, and then my cell phone is dying. And I finally get to her, and th- and she thinks I'm kidding her. On the way out the door, people think I'm kidding. So people are kind of surprised by that, which made me feel good about it. Um, but the interesting part is that I get back home and the next week, the Krypton people called, Craig and Lance, who Lance is now CEO of Krypton, called me and said, we're going away, but we'll be back in 10 days and we really like to talk to you and hopefully can we can help each other. And so talk about great timing there was a company who was looking to expand residentially and me who had, in my mind shockingly was in a position that i never thought i would be in i had worked at that company from 14 to 57 till age 57 moving from the you know from the watchman up to an equity partner and thinking this is this is what's happened and so now you're at 57 you're thinking what the hell am i going to do now so in terms of luck, I mean, it was just unbelievable that they came forward, and we—it was basically—it was—it was a startup, and so product. That-
0: yeah, I mean, let me ask you: they they called you, you take the job. What was that thought process? Once you accepted the job and you said, "Okay, now I have to deliver this. I have to start this up." Where did you start? What what were the first things that you sat down? You sit down in your office and say, "Okay, how do I attack this?"
1: What were the the steps? What was your process? Okay, well, so we looked at what we had to offer from a product standpoint, and it wasn't right. It was not really residentially oriented yet at that point, but it's what we had. So uh, what I did at that point is got what we had, packaged it as well as we could, uh, we created, Randy had created a story, uh, really a marketing presentation for us to enter the business and I went down and basically called in favors and said to some of my best customers from all from all time and just said, Hey, I need some help here. I said, take a look at this stuff. If there's something you can find, please get you know, give me some help the first time. If it does not work, I promise I won't bump you again. So so we went around and and so talk about relationship selling. That was the most intense relationship selling i had ever done where i had to do and so the first season we wound up i think was 18 people that that bought into the program from the beginning and that was it was i think you know for for me it was a almost an affirmation of the fact that the previous years i had spent building these relationships were not work when were not wasted so that's that was the beginning of it and then since then in seven years the product has been built that the story has been honed the training that we have done throughout the residential market is is incredible we haven't we have a division called outreach and these guys travel around the country and and build our brand at at furniture stores and design centers so if you start to look at you know a name in the residential business for performance. It's 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 Krypton and Umbrella. Those are the two names that seem to resonate with with the uh, consumer. And to build a consumer brand in seven years is pretty amazing.
0: Now, when you sell into the commercial space. Um... There's no intermediary in the sense of there being an RSA or other steps to that need to be trained and that need to, to understand the product proposition. am I correct?
1: but well, we we do, we do training at uh, also at architectural firms at purchasing places and yeah. in, in both residential and contract. Okay. That's always been a part of what we do. So how does the residential
0: piece, Differ from the commercial. In other words, what's that process? Um, what's that? What are the extra steps that you need to take there to be successful in that space versus
1: commercial? Yeah, I think you, you make you need to make the link between the between the retailer, excuse me, between the furniture manufacturer, their retailer, and then the consumer. And I think if you don't do that, and, and a lot of people miss one of those steps, if you don't do that. You can have a successful program, but you're never going to have a brand. And for the brand, you need to get the consumers to to buy in. So not only have we done that with, with the traditional uh, methodology of, of distribution, which is what I just described, we're also you're also working with, with digital advertising, you're working with influencers, we're working with bloggers. So we're trying to build in every level, trying to build a buzz and, and an acceptance of our product. Hmm.
0: It's an interesting strategy for someone in at both our stages of our career to to have to start to think digitally. Right? That's a whole new it's a whole new
1: universe out there. It is, yeah. And I, I also think that leads into into something that I know we wanted to talk about, which is which is balancing your staff and looking around and saying it's one of the one of the revelations I had is when when you're when you're my age and you're and you're going down to North Carolina to try and sell the century furnitures of the world and 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 all of our vanguards and and all the people who we do well with um, you look around and the people who used to buy the product are not buying the product anymore they're either the executives of the company, or they retired and moved on. So you're looking at the buyers and they're not you anymore. You know, you used to go be, be able to go in and look in the mirror and say, that's the Henrodon guy who is like me. I'm going to go in and sell him. And the reality is that they're not that anymore. So you have to look at your company and you have to build around your customers. You have to mimic what your customers have become. So if your customer buyers are in their 30s, you're not going to have a 60-year-old guy going down and relating and selling to them. So what you need to do is build not only the marketing team, the sales team, and and make it so it's not just traditional advertising, but it's digital. And these are all skill sets of different and younger people. And I think the mistakes that companies are making today is they're not building for the future. We've done a great job at Krypton of that. If you you look around, I, I was sitting at a, an ITA event about a year and a half ago. And the person was running it at the end and he's introducing people by company, by table. And he starts to talk about how many people were born in 1950s, in the 50s. And some people are standing up, including me. And then they went to the 60s, 70s, 80s. And you realize that around the table, we've got people from 25 to 35 who are really the core of what we're doing in our business. So not only are we building for now, but we're building for the future. And, and that also helps somebody like me because it helps me give some opportunities to some people kind of the way that opportunities were given to me. And that's important to me.
0: One of the challenges that a lot of folks talk about in attracting and retaining the next generation is they have a very different, attitude toward work than our generation did and i and i was with a speaker at a conference one time and he and he asked everyone to talk about their first job experience and when you talk about baby boomers like you started at 14. my first job mm-hmm. was delivering papers at 12. if you ask millennials the same question very often their first job experience doesn't come till they graduate college it, it's so it's it's a very different set of skills that they bring to the workplace As you start to bring these young people in, are there some things that you've learned about attracting and retaining young people, the things that are important to them and the way that you might motivate or incent them versus the way you might have incentivized or motivated people of your generation or Generation
1: uh, X? Yeah, I think think a lot of it has to do with expectations. I think expectations today are significantly higher than, than they were when we grew up when when i was at the plant and when i was in new york and every stage that i took in my career it was not overnight it it was long and it was tedious and in the beginning it was not tremendously rewarding um and and i kind of knew that going in and i pushed you know to to speed up the process but what but what i see today is the expectations are so high right from the beginning you know it's like From college to the executive suite, you know, and and in three years, I'm going to be running the world and the country and everything else. And I think so. You need to temper. And that's a that's a tough balance. You need to temper the expectations of saying you're not going to be president in three years, but also you have an opportunity to grow in three years. And so I think if you do that, I think you'll find that that's how that's going to be one of the one of the ways that you're going to be able to select the people you want around you once you make that speech to them and you realize how they react to that is it, you need then you decide whether they're for you or not so you try and get people who you see a li- you, who see you see a little bit of yourself in but you don't wanna hire people who are just like you because if you've got a lot of yous in the room, it could probably drive everybody crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I couldn't handle a lot of me's in the room.
1: <laughs> Jack, I really wanna thank you for
0: taking the time to talk to us today. This has been a real education, I really appreciate it. Bill, thanks, I appreciate the opportunity, thanks. All right, Bye. my guest this week was Jack Eger, Senior Vice President of Krypton Home Fabrics.